So we're going to turn now to our passage um, for this morning. We're continuing on through the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning we come to chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 6, and then skip over, you'll see a minute why, but skip over 7 to 15, and then also hit verses 16 to 18. So hopefully you have a Bible there, and you can turn in your Bible to Matthew 6, um, and we'll read that in just a minute, but before we do, I want you to just start to think and reflect on some of the themes that we'll find here in Matthew 6. Um, have you ever found yourself serving or you know, doing some kind of servant-hearted thing and you've done it in order for people to see how servant-hearted you are? Or maybe in your service, especially if it's been long and sacrificial, did you find yourself sighing a bit you know, making sure the people around you knew how tired and weary you, you were. Oh, man, it's just, you know, that kind of thing. Do you ever, have you ever fished for compliments? Um, you know, bringing up some things that you've done in order for people to recognize and notice what you've done. Have you ever done something for someone and then been consumed by wondering when they were going to acknowledge what you'd done? Have you ever been proud of your humility? Have you ever wanted others to draw attention to your humility? Um, or I think if we either desire a position of spiritual authority or if we get in one of those positions, sometimes we work hard to try to protect or to promote an image of spiritual maturity. So do you need to be noticed? Do you have, do you have to be honored, um, respected? that kind of thing. Why are those impulses so strong? Um, I think it's because they, they pay, right? They offer real gain, real benefit, it seems. So the praise of, of other people, the respect and approval of others is worth a lot to us. And the lack of respect or approval seems like a, a great loss. So those things are, those impulses are so strong in relation to other people, especially people whose opinion really matters to us. But we should ask the question, why is that dynamic so weak sometimes in relation to God? His smile, his approval, his praise. So how much is the pleasure and smile and notice and honor of God worth to us. So our passage in Matthew 6 is going to address some of those things and help us. Jesus wants to work his grace and his truth down into the core of who we are. He wants to change us from the inside out. So uh, let's read Matthew 6, 1 to 6 and 16 to 18, and then um, I'll pray for us and then we'll dive in. All right. So Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All right, let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that you are in sovereign control of this entire universe and certainly our galaxy and our solar system and our little speck of dust relative to the size of the solar system and the galaxy. You are powerful and awesome and wise beyond our comprehension. And we thank you that even when it feels like the world can be spinning out of control, um, we know that you are in control and we can trust you. We thank you that you are not just strong, but you are merciful and gracious, that you are kind and loving, that you care for us and we can cast our cares on you. Lord, we also thank you that you love us enough to be stubbornly committed to changing us and making us new from the inside out. And so Lord, we know that we need to repent and trust Jesus. We know we need to grow and change. We, we, we don't wanna be conformed to this world. We wanna be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So please, as we study your word, would you come by your spirit and help us to humbly receive your word, to not resist your spirit's work of conviction and, and change, but welcoming it. So please give us eyes to see your goodness and glory in Matthew 6, to see the true value and weight of the reward that you offer. And I pray that we would never go after the fool's gold of the honor of people that can be so uh, fickle and uh, yeah, it's just like a chasing after the wind. So Lord, um, have, have your way in us and shape us, speak to us this morning through your word, and I pray that you would encourage us as well and uh, feed our faith and make it strong and buoyant and durable, especially in the face of uncertain times like the ones we live in now. Uh, we want to be stable and tethered to you so that we can be an anchor for other people and 
love well in times like this. So give us grace this morning and help us to be hungry for it and receptive of it. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, there is an outline. How's that going to work? Yeah, okay. Um, what do I say as far as how they access it? Will it be there? Okay, so if you check your email, there's uh, it's, it's simple. It's a four-part outline. Um, Tyler's over here helping with the tech. So anyway, um, there's a four-point four outline that you can uh, follow along with. So the first point is verse 1, heart righteousness and heavenly reward. So let's look again, Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is concerned with righteousness. We see that right off the bat in verse 20 of chapter 5. So real heart-level righteousness. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was scrupulous. It was meticulous but it was an external veneer. Um, and Jesus knew their hearts. In chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So. It's a quality of righteousness that Jesus is after um, in his people. He is the king. He's on the scene, the king of kings. He's bringing his kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom is good news for unrighteous people like you and me. There's no one righteous, not even one, like Paul says in Romans 3. And Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God so that Anyone who trusts Jesus will be forgiven of all of that unrighteousness, be justified in God's sight, declared righteous before the judge of all the earth. So that's what the good news of the kingdom is all about, is there is, you can be right with God. You can be just, justified before God by grace, through faith in Jesus, the righteous one, who died in our place to pay for our sins so that all of that unrighteousness could be dealt with, washed away, cleansed. And in God's sight, we are in Christ. We are united with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Our old life is, is dead and buried. All of our sins are already paid for and we are raised to newness of life. And we have the righteousness of Christ. So that's the gospel of the kingdom. It's powerful. It has the power then to change us from the inside out. Not a faux veneer righteousness, but an authentic inside out righteousness. Like 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus the Father made Jesus the Son, God the Father made, made the Son, who knew no sin, he was sinless, to be sin for us in our place on the cross, so that in him, trusting in him as our Savior, we might become the righteousness God. So the Sermon on the Mount lays out, Jesus lays out, what that righteousness looks like. Okay, It's not just not murdering people in chapter 5, but not being filled with unrighteous 
anger. So internal righteousness that works itself out in our attitudes and behavior. So not just not committing adultery, but not being filled with unrighteous sexual desire, lust internally. And not just loving those who love you, like we looked at last week, but even loving enemies, which again is a miracle work. We're only going to be able to love like that if Jesus' love, we can love like that because he first loved us while we were still enemies. All right, his enemies. So now in chapter 6, Jesus is going to continue to unpack what it looks like to be heart righteous, heart level righteous, authentically righteous in our giving and praying and fasting. And then also um, with what we do with our treasure and in relation to anxiety and what we seek first. All right, so Jesus says here, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So I love this quote by Dallas Willard, um, and I'll make these quotes available uh, either on the blog or in an email that we send out this week in case you want to reference them again. So he writes this, one of the greatest fallacies of our faith and actually one of the greatest acts of unbelief is the thought that our spiritual acts and virtues need to be advertised to be known. The frantic efforts of religious personages, like notable people, and groups to advertise and certify themselves is a stunning revelation of their lack of faith and substance. Secrecy, rightly practiced, enables us to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God, who lit our candles so we could be the light of the world not so we could hide under a bushel. We allow him to decide when our deeds will be known and when our light will be noticed. That's so good. Let's leave our public relations department entirely in the hands of God who lit our candles so that we could be the light of the, light of the world, not so that we would hide under a bushel. So that kind of reminds us of what Jesus said back in 516. Um, and it can seem like there's kind of a tension here or maybe even a contradiction. Um, you know, back in 516, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But here he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So what's, what's going on there? How do we resolve that tension? Well, actually, they complement each other, these two passages. The key is to notice that Jesus is addressing different sins or temptations in each context. So in the context of 516, it's actually cowardice or shame. <clears throat> so don't hide your light under a basket. In 6.1, it's hypocrisy. Okay, so another great quote here. A.B. Bruce summed it up well when he said this. We are to show when tempted to hide, and hide when tempted to show. So 516 and 6.1, they are complementary, not contradictory. We are to show when tempted to hide. We need to let our light shine, okay, and not be ashamed or cowardly shrink back um, and, and hide our light under a bushel basket. And we should hide when we're tempted to show. So do it in secret when we're tempted to, um, you know, practice our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. So Jesus intends to change us 
from the inside out, remember back in 417, first words recorded when he begins his public ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he wants to change those impulses from the inside out. You know, when you hide your light under a basket, when you're tempted to do that, um, when you have done that, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then on the other hand, beware of your need to be noticed. When you show your righteousness in order to be noticed by people, repent again, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the repentant, humble people, his people. So he changes us from the inside out that we might let our light shine, not to impress other people with us, with our righteousness, how spiritual we are, but in such a way that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So one more thing here before we move on to the specific application of verse 1, this principle in relation to giving, praying, and fasting. Um, look again at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See that reward language? It's repeated many times in this chapter. You'll, you'll hear it, or maybe you heard it as we read it through um, a few minutes ago. So you are supposed to do your righteousness for reward from your Father. So does that bother you at all? Does that strike you as odd? Does, it, does that mean that God is encouraging us to be spiritual mercenaries? You know what a mercenary is? <laughs> like a gold digger would be an example of a mercenary. You know what a gold digger is? It's, it's like a slang expression for someone who engages in a romantic relationship, not for love, but for the money. Okay, so they're mercenaries. They don't want the relationship, the love. They want what that thing can get them, the reward, the cash, okay? So is that what Jesus is encouraging here? Hey, give, pray, and fast for the reward. Be like a, a young woman marrying an old man for his money. <laughs> is Jesus threatening to hold back blessings if we don't do what he wants here? I mean, it's like, you'd be bothered by the fact that we're to be motivated by reward here. I mean, in some people's minds, you know, whether they're philosophical in their orientation like Kant or just at kind of a practical, you know, visceral level, like doesn't that, you know, doing it for the reward, doesn't that strip our righteous acts of all virtue if we're just doing these things to get reward? I mean, this is actually a really big deal. This is not a peripheral question has to do with our motivation and our purposes in obeying God. It has to do with how we grow and change. Like, what? where's the power to live the way God wants us to live? Why do we do what we do? So should we do the right thing simply because it's right, regardless of the benefit? Is that the righteous thing? Is that the virtuous orientation as far as motivation goes? Should we be disinterested and not care about reward? Is the only virtuous motivation for righteousness just do the right thing simply because it's right? So there's a, a story that Richard Wormbrand um, told once of a Cisternian monk, like an Italian monk, um, who was interviewed on TV. And uh, this monk was asked the question, what if you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true, that there's no God? Tell me, what if that were true? And the monk responded like this, 
Holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves, even without promise of reward. I still will have used my life well. What do you think of that? Do you resonate with that? Do you say amen to the, the monk? I don't think the Apostle Paul would resonate with that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. In other words, like, we're wasting our lives if this isn't true. You know, like, what do we gain if we've suffered in all these ways? You know, Paul is, is suffering for the sake of the gospel. Why don't we just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? Jesus would not resonate with that monk. So, a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you, do you see that Jesus wants you, expects you to respond in your own best interest? Now you've got to trust him. But he is truly after reward and profit and gain for you. Like that lasts for eternity rather than just lasts for, you know, a few years of life here on earth. So here's the point. You and I, we're going to go after reward. We're just hardwired to do that. It's just a matter of what you're going to believe about who offers the true and most valuable reward. So everybody is oriented this way. God wired us this way. And so I think what we need to understand is there is a world of difference between proper and improper rewards or between, we could say it this way, selfishness and enlightened self-interest. Okay, Think about what Jesus is saying back in Matthew 16. So deny yourself. Well, you're like, well, wow, that's doing a hard thing. But it's not just a hard thing for the hard thing's sake. It's the hard thing because there's a better thing that he's offering. So don't try to save your life. Go after the lesser reward. Lose your life for my sake and you will gain it. You will find it for the greater reward. Like, what would it profit you if you gain everything in this world and you forfeit your soul? I don't want you to forfeit your soul. I want you to gain your soul for eternity. So do you see there's a difference between foolish, short-sighted selfishness and wise, enlightened Trust the Lord, trust Jesus' promises and word, enlightened self-interest. So C.S. Lewis actually wrote with great insight on this. Um, he said this, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. 
That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover. And he is not mercenary for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to get a peerage, to be impressive among his peers, is mercenary. But a general who fights for victory, let's say it's a just war, is not mercenary. Victory being the proper reward of battle as marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. This is all over the Bible. Acts 20.35, Paul quotes a passage, uh, something that Jesus said that's not recorded in the Gospels, but he says, uh, as our Lord said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. What is the motivational appeal there? That you are going to go for the more blessed path, for greater happiness, <laughs> greater reward. So the whole point is you actually have to believe him. So it's an issue of walking by faith and not by sight. Okay? And we'll see that soon enough in a couple weeks. Matthew 6, 19 to 20. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because it, you know, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. <laughs> so is it selfish to lay up treasure for yourself in heaven? No, it's wise. It's enlightened self-interest. So this is actually at the heart of faith. It's not a peripheral issue. So you got to turn over to Hebrews 11.6 because I think this is key as we head into these three applications of this principle in verse 1. Giving, praying, fasting. you got to have Hebrews 11.6 in mind as we go through this. So Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he he rewards those who seek him. You can only please God if you value his reward. His blessing, his approval and commendation over those rewards that you can receive from people. Okay? Jesus said it with some stark simplicity in John 5.44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. We should be seeking the reward, the glory that comes from God. So let's beware of practicing our righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, we will have no reward with our Father who's in heaven. So the reward of God is what is truly valuable. We see the, the worth of the reward that can come from people. We see that by, by sight. We see the worth of the reward from God only by faith. And we need to walk by faith and not by sight. We've got to be believers like Abraham. Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And what happened there? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So you got to see how real righteousness and real reward have gone together for a long time. So this is not just a novel thing Jesus is putting together. This has been true for um, from the beginning. 
So this is just awesome. It's amazing. It's sweet. Like Jesus is warning us not to miss out on reward. <laughs> he wants to give us true treasure, true reward. What kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom is this? He, he's not trying to levy massive taxes on us because he's needy and he wants, you know, to make this impressive kingdom. He's got everything and he wants to bless his people. He wants them to trust him because he's got true treasure for them. So repentance, like 417, repent, kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, is turning from cut rate reward to bit treasure, faux reward, fool's gold, in order to accept and pursue true treasure that the king wants to give to us. So real righteousness is produced by believing in and pursuing real reward. Faux righteousness, like that of the Pharisees and, and uh, scribes, is the result of being deceived into going after fool's gold. So Jesus is saying, if you want, to, if you want the notice, the praise, the approval of people, you may very well get it. Although, certainly it can be fickle. And, you know, sometimes you'll have it, sometimes you won't. But even if you get it, that's all you're going to get. But positively, he's saying, behold the reward of your father. It is infinitely more valuable. Live by faith before the audience of one. All right, so now let's head into the application of verse one. Three different ways, giving, praying, and fasting. And again, keep Hebrews eleven six as the foundation of these three applications in mind as we go along. So point number two, giving by faith. This is verses two to four. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So don't give in order to be praised by others. Otherwise, again, that's all the reward you'll have. Give secretly for your father's reward. So don't sound a trumpet, and you know whether this was literal or metaphorical um, could actually be either one. You know, if it's metaphorical, it's kind of like our expression: "Don't toot your own horn." Um, but the point is, don't draw attention to your giving. So <clears throat> there are people who give in order to receive things from other people, you know, recognition, praise, acceptance, even shares of control. But they're not giving to the poor out of love for God or love for the poor, the needy. They're giving to the poor in order to buy shares of honor in the eyes of other people. So they are pretending to give, but in reality what they're after is they want to receive, not from God, but from other people. Recognition, um, praise, all of that. So again, if a young woman marries an old man for his money, she is giving services in order to get what she wants. It's like a sophisticated kind of prostitution. Well, if that's our motivation for our giving, then we are like spiritual prostitutes. Using giving to get praise from people, to impress people. So the irony is that you end up 
gaining approval for something that you're not. <laughs> if you think about it, you, those who notice you are not even noticing you, the real you, because it's not really you. It's, it's a, you're putting up a, a front. It's not who you really are. You're actually selfish inside, not the loving, generous person that you want to be known for. Okay, that's the hypocrisy that Jesus calls out here. Don't give in order to receive honor for something that you're not, like a person who actually cares for the poor, the needy. If that's your motivation, it's mercenary. Jesus wants you to really love the poor and want to care for them, putting your money where your mouth is. Okay, So you can see how this ties in even contextually with the end of chapter 5, the passage we looked at last week. In verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So the needy can't benefit you. But when the rich mercy and grace of Jesus changes us from the inside out, it fills us up and frees us to be graciously generous to others without concern for return on that investment, you know, as far as an earthly human level. Um, but it's also because we know that God's going to honor that generosity. We know that we can lay up treasure in heaven. And so it's by faith that we give this way and bless those who are in need. So verse three, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So what's the point of this whole left hand not knowing what your right hand is doing? So right hand typically, you know, in that Semitic conception would be this is the hand of action. Um, so certainly there's the point of anonymity, uh, not doing it openly to kind of flaunt um, your giving in front of others. It should be between us and the Lord. We should guard our hearts, obviously, because, um, you know, we, we want to be known for what we've done. So certainly we need to guard our hearts. They're deceitful. I just thought of an illustration um, to my shame. Um, so this is back when Lily was born. Our uh, OBGYN, this guy, is a, a Jewish guy that um, we came to love, uh, wonderful man, and um, started to get to know him over the, the years of previous babies, and uh, you know, Hannah and Sam, and uh, he was retiring right before Lily was going to be born. And, you know, we were so bummed because we wanted him to deliver her as well. And we thought, we'd love to invite him to come, but ah, he's probably busy. He would never want to come. And, and the last appointment we had with him, he actually said, can I come as a birth coach? <laughs> um, we're like, that's great. We'd love to have you there. So anyway, um, this guy came when Lily was born. And after she was born, I remember we were sitting in the room and I think probably I was going to be preaching that coming Sunday, and I opened my computer and pulled up Bible work. So he's got Jewish background, but he's a believer now in Jesus. He would still go to the, to the um, synagogue and you know, study the Old Testament, the Torah, and Hebrew on Saturdays, Sabbath school. And so I, I open my computer and I pull up Bible Works, which is kind of this you know, sophisticated Bible program that, that I'd used for a while. And he was so impressed, like, what? 
I didn't even know there was resources like this. And there was a woman in our church who worked for Zondervan Publishers, and she had recently sent me, um, actually anonymously, uh, anonymously at first, a copy, like an extra copy they had, and she didn't need it, so she sent it to me. And you know, this Bible program is like $300, $350, something like that. And I tried to give it back to her. I said, I already have it. Um, she said, ah, just keep it. You'll find somebody to give it to. Okay. So I'm sitting there showing um, this doctor, this program, and you know how you can search in Hebrew and Greek and all this stuff. And he's so amazed, like kid in the candy store, his eyes are wide. And I said, actually, I have a copy for you. <laughs> and um, I told him that it had been given to me, but I ended up telling him how much it is worth. And you know what, if I'm honest, I did it because I wanted him to see, to know how big of a gift it was. I, I wanted to um, benefit. Uh, I wanted his approval or praise or commendation or something like that. Um, and I despised God's praise and commendation and reward. So anyway, it's just ugly, it's so deceitful, it's easy for that to just crop up in our hearts. Um, so maybe a good thing if you've never done it before, have you ever given something anonymously? Um, it can be a, a real good test of your faith in the reward of God. So point being, we are to not flaunt our giving, it should be between us and the Lord, but there's actually a little bit more here, I think. Why does Jesus say, say don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So John Stott offers some insight here. He says, not only are we not to tell other people about our Christian giving, there is a sense in which we are not even to tell ourselves. We are not to be self-conscious in our giving, for our self-consciousness will readily deteriorate into self-righteousness. So subtle is the sinfulness of the heart that it is possible to take deliberate steps to keep our giving secret from men, while simultaneously dwelling on it in our own minds in a spirit of self-congratulation. Ouch. <laughs> um, yeah, we need to guard our hearts against self-congratulation. Uh, against wanting the fool's gold reward of praise or respect from people, certainly. But also, like, I mean, have you ever had this happen where maybe... This is tax season, maybe you're looking at your giving statements. You can kind of pat yourself on the back when you get your annual giving statement and kind of have this self-congratulatory um, dynamic going on. I think we need to guard our hearts from that as well. So don't just guard your heart against, you know, being inclined to human reward, the praise of other people in our giving. Uh, but also let's make sure we believe positively the promise of reward from our Father. I mean, do we really believe that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him? That He really does reward that secret giving? That we really can lay up treasure in heaven? So, this is an exhortation to walk by faith and not by sight. So let's give by faith in the true reward of our Father. Second application, praying by faith, verses 5 to 8. And when you pray, you must not, or 5 to, to 6 actually, 
Uh, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the problem, like Jesus is not saying we should never pray publicly. Um, the problem is that when we pray publicly in order to be seen by others, like to be impressive spiritually, to impress others with our spirituality. So have you ever felt like some people preach more in their prayers than pray? I mean, sometimes I've sat there and wondered as somebody's praying, are, are you trying to inform God of all that? Um, he already knows. Or there's a story of a time when Spurgeon um, in London, you know, well-known preacher of uh, in the 1800s, he had this guest speaker who came and, and was going to be preaching, and he prayed, and he's like droning on and on in this kind of preaching at the people, flowery way. And finally Spurgeon stopped him and said, just call him Father and ask him for something. <laughs> so maybe we don't do that, you know, wax on, flowery, long prayers, but do you ever sit in a prayer gathering and not pray because you're afraid it's going to sound dumb? Or you're not, or you're going to maybe say something wrong, or, you know, you're not going to sound spiritual enough or something? Or do you sit there and rather than praying along with the person who's praying out loud, you're thinking of, how you can put together like this spiritually impressive prayer. So we need to just scrap all of that, <laughs> repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and just go to our Father in secret, pour out our hearts, and he will reward us. I think another good question to ask ourselves is, do we pray more in public or pray more with other people than we do in private? Um, D.A. Carson says this, the person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in human praise. Not piety before God, but a reputation for piety is that person's concern. So we need to guard against that. So instead, Jesus says, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So again, the question is, do I believe in this reward that's promised? And then we do need to ask the question, what is that reward? Like, is that future? Is it present? Um, what kind of reward is this? Well, think, think about the fact that pretty much all prayer is driven by need, right? Um, usually we pray more during the hardest times of life than we do on vacation. So, um, yeah, okay, so, yeah, prayer is driven by need, okay, and sometimes, though, when we are in need, we run to other things for help and comfort and whatever. We can run to comfort food instead of to God. We can try to just scramble and, and figure it out in our own strength, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, we can get fooled into thinking that some of these other places to turn are going to grant us the answers and the help and the strength and the satisfaction that we need. Okay, that is reward. And that's the stuff that God can give us. That's the stuff that he offers to us. So it's this real present kind of reward when we go to him with our needs.
Those things seem to offer reward or comfort or refuge or help or whatever, but it's foolish to depend on those things. Only God can give us true reward. But also, I think it's a future dynamic as well, um, where eternity will tell the impact of our prayers. Um, I mean, you've heard that Ray Bolt song, Thank You for Giving to the Lord. You know, these people come up in the song, you know, to this person who enters heaven because of their giving or their praying or their, their ministry, all of these people are in heaven. So again, only eternity will tell the true impact of our prayers. So when we believe that reward, we will pray in secret. We don't care, you know, what people think of us. It's not to impress them. It's because we're trusting um, God's promise of reward. All right. So pray to be seen by your Father because you trust that He alone is the only true rewarder. Right. So prayer is, you know, He goes on and gives the Lord's prayer here, and it's it's worth noting that this is the only section that it gets expanded on. So really, the Lord's prayer, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. The Lord's Prayer is like the center of the entire sermon. So there's real emphasis and focus on that. And um, Pastor Tyler is going to be focusing on that next week, verses 7 to 15. One final application, verse 16 to, to 18. Final application of verse 1, fasting by faith. So when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So once again, there's a warning here. Don't fast like a hypocrite um, to draw attention to your fast. If the notice of others is what you want, then the notice of others is all you're going to have. Instead, we're to do what it takes to hide actually from others the fact that we're fasting because we know that our fasting is seen by our Father and His reward is the reward that we desire. So this whole, you know, anoint your, your head and wash your face is just, you don't want to look all haggard and have people ask you like, oh, what's wrong? Oh, I'm, I'm doing a fast. You know, you don't want to draw attention to you. Just wash your face, brush your teeth, get on with it and um, God sees and that's all that matters. A couple qualifiers here that are appropriate. Does this mean that if somebody finds out that you are fasting, that it ceases to count? Um, we really need to get away from those kind of mechanical categories. There's certainly precedent for corporate fasts in the Bible. There's no reason to believe that it shouldn't carry over into the church today. Um, Bethel, as a church, we certainly encouraged a number of corporate fast times over the last several years. Um, it also doesn't mean that if somebody finds out that you've sinned or you're a hypocrite. Um, John Piper's got an excellent book called A Hunger for God, and it's a book about fasting that I'd recommend. He says, being seen fasting and fasting to be seen are not the same. I think that's helpful to distinguish. Um, so, as for fasting, did you notice that Jesus assumes that fasting is a part of the normal Christian life? When you give, when you pray, when you fast. So, have you ever fasted for spiritual reasons? If you haven't, the main point here is that you're actually missing out on reward. 
So I think most Christians understand the reasons why we give and why we pray, but why do we fast? So there's no spiritual magic to fasting. You're not earning points with God. You are denying physical hunger for the sake of heightening hunger for God and his word and his will and his blessing. So you say with a fast, God, we want you and your reward, your help, your direction, your blessing more than we want food. We don't want to be mastered by anything but you. We don't want our stomachs to be our God. You are our God. And so when we fast, we're living out the truth that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So then our, our physical hunger pains are like a reminder to us of the purposes of our spiritual hunger for his will to be done, for his intervention, for his wisdom, for you know whatever trial we're going through or whatever um, longing we have at a, a spiritual level. So don't think that when we fast, God all of a sudden is going to go, man, they must be really serious about this. I guess I've got to answer their prayers now. Okay, that, that's not the point. We can never manipulate or coerce God to do anything that uh, he does not want to do. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115. So fasting is also not a means of meriting favor or earning blessings. You know, we can never put God in our debt. Fasting is a God-ordained means of grace, just like prayer. So God's chosen to mediate his grace through the means of fasting, just like he has chosen to do it through prayer as well. God doesn't need our prayers, but prayer is normal and a necessary means of grace. God doesn't need our fasts, but fasting is a normal and necessary means of grace. And we'll send out, again, some more information along these lines, kind of a practical primer to fasting uh, via email tomorrow, maybe with some other uh, follow-up resources. But bottom line, what do you want? Do you want the reward of the world? or the reward of the Father. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God is the great rewarder. So let's give and pray and fast by faith and seek the reward of our Father. Let's pray. Father, in the words of this old prayer, um, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open and all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord.